Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Cowkey. Today my guest is Patty Block. She's the CEO of the Block Group and she's also the author of Your Hidden Advantage. We're going to be spending some time today helping you to realise how you can build real value in your business so that you can sell it. Many of you might be looking down the barrel of a gun at the moment and thinking, well, there's no value. I'm probably better off just walking away or just shutting my doors. Well, that's not necessarily the case. And if you get the right kind of help, you can probably avoid that. Are you leaving money on the table? Are you making decisions based on limiting beliefs, assumptions, misguided misapprehensions? Are you making decisions emotionally? Well, if you can position your business for exit and get a quick profitable sale, do you want to walk away with just a big fat check and never look back? Well, are you okay with an earnout? Why would you choose one or the other? And how and where are you wasting time, money, effort, resource? Where are you hemorrhaging money? Because almost every business I know is wasting money because of the things that they do that they haven't bothered to examine. And then we're going to look at, well, what's it going to cost you if you aren't prepared to exit? And we're also going to look at how does your ego play a part in killing value in the business? So without any further ado, Patty, welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your history and then another minute on your book? You bet. So I am a business advisor for women-owned businesses, for women who are experts in their fields. Often they've come out of a corporate career, they've built their company, they're very successful, and they're not necessarily looking to the future. They're so bogged down in the moment. And that is strangling their business in many ways. And they're wondering, they've hit the 1 million or the 2 million in annual revenue mark. And they're wondering, how am I going to get to the next million? Or how am I going to position my company so someday I can exit and realize all the hard work that I've put into building this business? So I have, I founded this company in 2006 and have seen all kinds of patterns, much as you have, Marcus, in terms of the waste, leaving money on the table, not understanding the real value that you're bringing to the market. So that means you may be underpricing and undervaluing yourself. And it may also mean that you are limiting your company so that if and when you're ready to sell, you feel as though you don't have anything of value. So that is the focus that I bring. In a previous life, I had a company as a political consultant and a lobbyist, and I loved it. It was fascinating and I'd never do it again. (laughs) <laughs> but I learned, I learned a tremendous amount in that business that informed what I'm doing today, including how I teach communication skills so that my, my clients are more confident, they understand better the effect and the impact that they can bring to the market. And I'm also helping them attract right fit clients and boost their revenue through their pricing and building a pricing model. Very interesting. So um, talk to me about the book, Your Hidden Advantage. So the book was inside me for a really long time. 
And part of that was because I wanted to have a bigger impact and reach more women business owners who are experts in that earlier stage, because you can be building business value every step of the way. And we don't always recognize that. So this book is targeted for people that have been in business, let's say three to 10 years or so, and they're doing well, but they really know they could be doing better. And when I say doing better, meaning that the business is, doesn't feel like a burden, you're generating more money, which gives you more choices, more power, and they are working with the people that they know they can impact the most and where they can bring that kind of value to those buyers. So working with those right fit clients and boosting their revenue, which gives them more choices. So your hidden advantage is built on a structure that I developed called the SNAP system. And SNAP stands for stop believing the myths, narrow your focus, assess your value, and practice your power. And those are the four pieces that I believe need to fit together in order for you to achieve the outcome of boosting your revenue. That all makes perfectly good sense. You mentioned that, uh, obviously, that you'd had this fascinating career as a lobbyist. And I'm curious, um, what did you learn was peculiar to the needs of women when they communicate? Because my wife and I have just launched the program specifically because we fundamentally believe there are nowhere near enough women in sales nor in leadership and uh, running businesses. And if we had more of a balance, I think we'd have less of the horrible uh, and utterly self-serving behavior uh, that goes on. I'm not saying all women are going to be perfect, but I think it will temper the more, how can one put this, megalomaniacal and Ponzi schemey type of approach. Because it, it, it just seems that sales has gone to the dogs because we've gone down a very dark and uh, self-serving road. We've put the customer at the, long, at the end of a long chain of abuse. Sellers are having to sell in that kind of culture. And they think that that kind of behavior, cutting corners, putting their needs before the needs of the customer is acceptable. So I would really love to understand what were the lessons that you learned, because I think there were, uh, will be many lessons that men could learn in their selling that are transferable. And also, I'd like women to become aware maybe of their hidden advantages, but also the things that they do to shoot themselves in the foot. One of the things I love about talking with you, Marcus, is that you don't mince words. And you put the issues out there and you highlight things that many people are not talking about. So I really appreciate that. There were so many things that I learned as a political consultant and a lobbyist. And one of those is that there is no level playing field. Mm-hmm. We, we think there is. We think that's something we have to strive for. But there just isn't. And that is not a male-female thing. That is the way our systems are developed, our governmental systems, our business systems. Cumulative advantage. Right. And the people who have the advantage will do anything to keep from losing that. Absolutely. And that is seen nowhere 
more acutely than in politics. And this drives the job to be done as well. We, we, we have to get to grips with the idea that actually whatever they say, the behavior points you to the job to be done. And if their intent is to rape and pillage your uh, company, that's what they're going to do. If they're going to get you to do free consulting, manipulate, coerce you, uh, as a seller, uh, you have to be able to stand firm. And uh, the big challenge, I think, is that we forget that it is not a level playing field, as you said. And as a result, we make assumptions, we come with heuristics, uh, we come with uh, completely erroneous beliefs, and we make terrible decisions. And you know, we, we touched on it in the intro, we make them emotionally. So let's get into the meat and grist, and I'm going to go on mute so I don't interrupt. So when we talk about the gender differences that you mentioned a moment ago, what I learned from the lobbying is that all the deals were made on the golf course and the strip clubs. And I'm a young mother of three little kids that I had at home and was commuting to my state capital. I'm based in Texas. So I was commuting three hours there and three hours back every day to go to my state capital. I was also doing some local and federal lobbying. In the meantime, I'm also, as a political consultant, managing campaigns for candidates, and I'm also planning a lot of fundraising events because fundraising is a critical piece of the political world, for good or bad. And what I realized, you know, I was very young, I was very naive, and I really did think there was a level playing field because I was raised to think that life could be fair. It's not. So I was working towards that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which is a level playing field where I can be effective. And it took me some time to realize that's the wrong goal because I can't change the system in which I'm working. So I shifted my goal to be how can I think creatively to get the deals done? And that became the goal. Now, in politics, you're in a position to compromise your ethics every single day. And that really wore me down because I wasn't going to compromise my ethics. It's also why I don't live in that world now. It is a very stressful environment and it is very top down. The people at the top are going to spit and kill in order to stay there. And there is no level playing field and you do have to get really creative with your strategy and your tactics in order to get the deals done and to be effective. And so that's how I eventually shifted. There are a couple of things I want to build on. I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, I'm just getting terribly excited. I did a load of work with a former client of mine, Sir Charles Coburn, and he ran the only ethical lobbying uh, group in the UK. So they never did brown envelopes. Um, they never dealt with politicians. They only dealt with the executives. And 30% of all the drugs over the uh, period that they traded that went through NICE, which is the regulator, regulator approval body for drugs in the UK, uh, 30% of them went through his business. Now, what was really fascinating about that was selling ethically was so hard because they were constantly up against people who were 
we had bribing, um, there were favours, there were lots of weird, wonderful backroom deals. And more often than not, the deals had uh, been or were in danger of being done long beforehand because of vested interest. Then you've got all of that noise, you know, this sort of dark money that goes into lobbying and all of that other stuff, the PACs and all of that. What you've pointed to is something uh, which people need to study, which is the theory of constraints. If you don't recognize that those constraints are beyond your control and you just don't accept them, one of my mentors, Mark Galston, said, let go or be dragged when I was being particularly stupid. And it was the best advice because if you don't let go of it, it just keeps burning inside you. It's like an acid. Now, within those constraints, they are a creative catalyst. When you don't have all the options, you have to ask better questions. So coming back to the communication piece, let's start working around that. Let's go in, get into the weeds around the specifics of the questions you have to ask yourself, especially as a woman in sales or a woman running a business in order that you can get the job done. Let's start with how we feel about ourselves as women, how we're raised, and what some of those limiting beliefs are, because that is the root of everything else. And you'll, you'll notice when I talked about the SNAP system, it goes in a very specific order. Stop believing the myths is the first. That's the foundational piece. The second is narrow your focus, which is about finding right fit clients. The third is assess your value. It's largely about pricing, but my contention is unless you're addressing your limiting beliefs first and attracting the people that you want to work with, your pricing really doesn't matter. And no matter how much time and effort you put into developing a pricing model, it just doesn't matter if you're not working with the right people and you still have those same limiting beliefs. The last piece is practice your power, which is about communicating effectively. And again, communicating effectively, if you're not feeling confident, if you're not feeling like there's a real rationale behind your pricing and you're not just picking a number out of thin air, then your communication is going to fall flat. And what we also, I think, really misunderstand is what it takes to, com to communicate effectively. Communicating is not talking. It's not talking at someone. It's not being really clever and creative with your words. That is not communication. Communication is how the other person receives it. And just saying something once or using a lot of jargon or some of the common mistakes that we make as communicators, those things, and again, they really don't matter because if the other person is not connecting with what you're saying, there is no communication there. It's just you talking and somebody else pretending to listen. And that is so common, especially today. So going back to your original question about what are some of the things that keep us stuck in terms of our communication? One of them is how we as women are raised. And that is, I know I was raised to be quiet, to not speak up, to defer 
to everyone else, be, quote, polite. It's what I call the price of nice, right? We're, we're very nice as women. And so we don't interrupt, we don't speak up, and we don't speak out about things that are important to us. Now, I'm going to qualify that by saying, I think we're getting much better. But if you've ever been in a conference room sitting around a table and everyone else speaks first and you're waiting your turn, that's what I mean by not speaking up. You don't have to wait for someone to grant you permission to speak. And you can still be appropriate and polite and assertive. And many, many people don't understand that. And assertive does not mean aggressive. It does not mean rude. It means understanding your own voice and speaking up and talking about things that are important to you, to your clients, to your family, to your colleagues, and not waiting for someone to give you permission to speak. It's a condition that a lot of introverts suffer from as well. And more often than not, people are underestimated. Now, what we're also touching on here is a fantastic model called the Winner's Triangle. So for those of you who've not heard of it before, it's the alternative to the Drama Triangle. In the Drama Triangle, if you imagine the triangle is above a line and it's on its sharp point, and at the bottom is the victim. And the victim says, why me? It's so unfair. Help, save me. Then on the top left, you have the persecutor. And that comes with a jabby index finger and the pronoun you in capitals as they attack and diminish you at an identity level. And they create tall poppy syndrome. So no one puts their head up. They create the conditions where no one takes a risk of being noticed. Because if they do, uh, they'll probably be perceived as a threat. And the only way to get along is by being a lick spittle and a bit of a toady, you know, aligning with the horrible boss. And then you've got the rescuer, and the rescuer, their job is to help without boundaries or permission. They mollycoddle, they're uh, permissive, and when they don't feel appreciated, they get hard done by, and they say, I'm doing my best. No one appreciates me. And they move straight into victim. And before you know it, you're in a spat. Now, the alternative is the winner's triangle, where you adopt a position of vulnerability and assertiveness. And that's the flat base. Vulnerable on the bottom left, assertive on the bottom right. And then nurturing and empathetic on the top. And if you operate from that triangle, it's very difficult for your ego to get hooked. And you can't get dragged into these psychological games because Bruce Lee was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. Well, this is the somewhere else. So that whole piece that you've talked about, being appropriate, polite, and assertive, and feeling like you don't have to wait for someone else to give you consent is critical. So how do you get women to show up in such a way that they have presence, but they don't then fall foul of the usual stereotypes of women who appear to be too pushy or too assertive? Because it seems to be desperately unfair and a very difficult tightrope. 
one of the most important elements, in my opinion, is detachment. So I need to care a whole lot less about what other people think. And I often equate that to I need to care a whole lot less about what everyone else is doing in their business. And it's really critical because we spend so much time, especially as women, comparing to our competitors, our colleagues. And that is a huge trap. You can figure out how to move your company forward and what works for you. And it doesn't make any difference what everybody else is doing. It just doesn't matter. So that's usually where I start on the limiting beliefs is how can you detach? And that is often a one-on-one conversation to help the women that I'm working with understand how great they are, how smart they are. Everyone that I work with is a high achieving expert. And we often overlook that because it seems easy to us. We achieved it. We're achievers. And we did what we were, quote, supposed to do, right? And we got through school and we earned our degrees and we now have built our career and then usually our business. So we've already achieved so much and we already did it. So we don't need to talk about it, right? And that, again, is how we're raised. You don't need to talk about it. And if you do talk about your achievements, then you're bragging. And we're really talking about unattachment rather than detachment. Okay, tell me more about that. Well, detachment is where you're objective and dispassionate and you can step back and look at it without being emotionally invested. And it's useful for managing emotions and avoiding becoming overwhelmed. And unattachment is really being free from any attachment or clinging to anyone or anything or having any expectation and being able to let go completely of the desire to possess, control someone, something, have something. It just takes it that one step further. And it just feels like that that seems to be the the ideal state. Not for women. Okay. Because, so here's a gender difference. I agree with you philosophically. That could be a goal. That is not possible for women, that unattachment. We can be detached because detached is temporary. But we cannot be unattached because we have built our whole life around connections. And so I've not met a woman that I think could achieve being unattached. And I don't think that's our goal. We care very deeply. So, and we take responsibility for things that probably are not our responsibility, but we feel responsible and we feel this internal pressure. So detachment is an achievable goal for women. I do not believe unattachment is, nor would they, I think I would get uh, such a negative response from that because of the connections that we've built throughout our lives. And especially our family connections, are very deep. We feel very responsible. And, you know, I've been the single mom of three kids since my youngest was two, and he just turned 31. So I've raised my children myself, no financial support. It it was a very difficult journey, but my kids are very adaptable. 
They communicate well. They're now all three business owners and they help me in my business and I help them in theirs. And it's a very symbiotic relationship. That kind of- Become an ecosystem. It becomes an ecosystem. And that is such a great word because that is what women strive for in their businesses. They want to build that ecosystem. So we cannot be unattached. Okay. I don't want to go down a philosophical argument. Um, I, I think we're actually speaking about quite same, the same thing, but I didn't express it well. But I'll come back to that once I've re-listened to it. I'm very curious about something. If we think about the journey that women founders go through, right from the start, there's a difference you know, in terms of their access to funding. I mean, my data is very old, but I don't imagine it's changed. You know, something like only 3% of all VC money in Silicon Valley went to women founders, and it was only fractionally more uh, than Asian entrepreneurs and two or three times that uh, African-American founders. But then you've also got the fact that they normally start with their own money or family money, and that the trajectory of those businesses tends to be slower but steadier, and they have a uh, higher survival rate, but they do suffer from problems like uh, undercharging and not really realizing the full value, and maybe imposter syndrome and things like this. So I've seen a lot of uh, women business owners over the years massively underselling themselves. And when they realize what they're doing and what the alternative is, and they get past that guilt, because quite often there's a money concept issue as well, then they really motor. If I look at probably the 10 best salespeople that I've ever worked with, at least seven of them are women. So I'm curious, what, what do we have to do to free women and introverts from that attachment to the wrong belief, to the I'm not worthy script, to whatever inherited drivel is going through their ears? So I'm going to challenge you. Because the question that you asked is very male-oriented. Okay. And as women, we think differently about that. So you asked the question, how can we free women from this terrible thing? We and men don't have the power to free women. This is not an oppression issue. Women are not oppressed in that way. My contention is what we've grown up to believe is keeping us oppressed, but we have the power to change it. And so everything that I'm teaching and everything that I talk about is about empowering your own self, giving yourself permission to believe certain things and to get rid of those beliefs that are keeping you stuck. So for example, a lot of women that I work with believe that they need to bring in more and more clients in order to even out their revenue. And what happens, as you know, Marcus, is that creates a whole new set of problems. And if you're just going out to find warm bodies, those are not ideal clients. And there are going to be all kinds of issues that come up and turn into problems. So 
what I help my clients understand is if you build a pricing model based on the value that you really bring to your clients and you build the perceived value in the mind of your buyer, first of all, your sale doesn't feel like a sale because it's a process you go through and you help your buyer be ready to buy, but you're not convincing anyone of anything. And then you don't feel that internal pressure. As soon as we feel the internal pressure as women, we tend to avoid. And if you avoid sales, then you can't get anywhere, right? You can't build your business. But this extreme belief that I have to bring in warm bodies and I need to bring in more and more clients in order to get more revenue, that keeps us stuck in a different way. Whereas if you build a pricing model based on value and you raise your prices and you find those right fit buyers who understand the value, it's like magic because then you're bringing in more revenue, more consistently, more predictably. You're solving that initial issue of I need more revenue, but you're doing it with a different belief and a different approach. And it is so much more effective than just bringing in warm bodies and feeling all that pressure that you have to sell, sell, sell. Where are people typically leaving money on the table because of inefficiencies or processes and received wisdom as to what best practices are and the failure to question? Yes, the failure to question is a big one. And Going back to my earlier point about we compare what everyone around us is doing and we think we need to be doing the same thing. The most accurate picture I can paint is when I talk about marketing. Now, my daughter owns a digital marketing agency and does very well and is very focused on that ethic, bringing ethics to that, right? And how you treat your clients and how you educate your clients. But we are being sold a bill of goods around marketing. And every business owner I know thinks they have to do certain things. They have to invest in this. They have to spend money on this. It's a huge waste of money. They typically do not get the results that they're anticipating or that the, someone has sold them on. Someone somewhere, some marketing expert has said, if you do this in this way at this time, you're going to get 10 times your results. And it's not true. And then we're left, especially as women, thinking there's something wrong with us, that we couldn't make it work. So when you stop comparing yourself to everyone around you, all the other business owners, and you figure out what is your path forward and how are you going to achieve that? One of the phrases I know you use frequently, Marcus, is how do you get the job done? What is the job to be done? And a lot of times we lose sight of that as business owners. You know, it's interesting for the business owners that have staff, either employees or contractors, there's a misunderstanding that our job as the business owner is to keep them happy and engaged. Now, there's nothing wrong with that concept. I think treating your employees well is incumbent upon you as the business owner. However, what that morphs into is that the business owner thinks that she's overworking people. And so she doesn't delegate 
because she doesn't want to give them, quote, too much work. Meanwhile, the staff is ready and willing to help. They're enthusiastic, they're skilled, they know what to do. And the business owner often is not delegating to them because she's afraid that if she gives them too much work or doesn't treat them well or keep them, quote, happy, that they will leave. Most women business owners are overstaffed, but they believe that they're understaffed. They think they don't have enough people. But when I go in and do a productivity analysis, I think they're overstaffed, and I'm not really clear what certain people are doing all day. And that's an area of waste, especially because women treat their staff like family. Then if I go in and suggest changes or streamlining or reducing costs, your staff are your, is your biggest cost by far. Then they're very threatened by any changes because they treat their staff like family. So I have a concept that I talk about frequently because when I was growing up, my mom made these fabulous cookies. The whole house smelled good. It was warm. The cookies were gooey. And all my life, my mom ate the broken cookies. But it wasn't until I was a teenager that I even thought to ask her, why do you only eat the broken cookies? Do they taste better? And she laughed and said, no, I eat the broken cookies so you can have the whole ones. And that memory came rushing back to me several years ago when I was struggling to put words around this really pervasive pattern that I have seen with women business owners. And that is, we bring that spirit of self-sacrifice that we saw in our role models, our moms and our grandmothers, and we bring that into our business. And everyone around us, our staff, our families, our clients, everybody else gets the whole cookie. And we live on crumbs. And I call that the broken cookie effect. It's very pervasive. I see it in many different aspects with women business owners. And what I just described with the staff is a great example of the broken cookie effect in action because that is what the owner is doing. She's eating the broken cookies, giving everybody else the whole cookie because she doesn't want to burden her staff and is afraid that they will leave or they'll say bad things about her or whatever the case. And so the broken cookie effect affects women in such a profound way And part of what I teach is how do you beat the broken cookie effect? And that is largely done by using the SNAP system. So it all ties together from the standpoint of the way we're raised as women. I think while there may be some societal oppression, I think we do such a good job in our own heads of causing ourselves problems creating limitations that really aren't there and using those as excuses as to why we're not more successful or ready to sell our company or building value in our company. And it's time for those excuses to be put to bed. Okay. Because that was the question I've been itching to ask you, which is what are the lies that women owners tell themselves? Because this is a perennial problem that I come across all the time. But I'm curious, you know, are, are there any peculiarities that women seem to 
carriers their own particular set of Gucci baggage. <laughs> yes. So one of them is, I'm the business owner, so I'm responsible for everything and everyone. It's my responsibility, not as the leader. That's a really different dynamic. And often women don't think of themselves as leaders, but we feel responsible for everything. And what we often misunderstand is that being a good leader is about empowering others. So you can be a good leader of your company and you are ultimately responsible for everyone and everything. And you can still delegate effectively and communicate effectively so that your team can help you and you can empower them and help them learn new skills. And you're also being a role model for the type of boss they may or may not want to be someday. So we do have an important role as the owner of the company, but we sometimes miss out on the idea that we're the leader and people are looking up to us and they're looking to us for answers. We do not have to solve every problem. We need to find the solutions, but we don't have to be the solution. So that's one of those huge limiting beliefs for women. And there are so many more that you may not even recognize in your own mind until someone brings it to your attention. Okay. And then we have to be brave enough to admit that we believe that and be willing to change it. Okay. So I firmly believe that friends have difficult conversations when they need to. Partners help each other get better, and that means that we enter into constructive conflict on a regular basis. We don't agree about everything. In fact, what's been really interesting this week is a couple of my partners ended up falling out because of their different communication styles. And of all people, um, yeah, grumpy old me is the one who's in the middle trying to build a bridge. So much of life is really aligned with selling. And our job is to enroll people in our vision of what might be possible and help them see the contrast between where they are and where they could be and help them feel certain that that change is going to be better and safer than staying stuck. To do that, we have to equip the people closest to the decision or closest to the point of suffering to make the decisions. You've described largely a rescuer on that drama triangle in terms of where uh, women uh, will come from on that model. What are the clues that other people will see in terms of um, the way the business operates, the way they communicate, the bottlenecks, the uh, points of delay and frustration that occur that would suggest that maybe a, a quick look in the ugly mirror for a moment and the realization that maybe it's me. Uh, what, what are the things that they'll see here people will be complaining about? Sure. And that is what you just described is the big, big underlying fear for most women business owners is that if they are brave enough to look in that quote ugly mirror, that what they're going to see will be so painful, they won't know how to fix it. And so they'd rather just not know. 
So it is a challenge. And that's why I used the word brave a little while ago. You have to be really brave to be willing to to take a look, to be honest, to put your ego to the side if what you really care about is the health of your business. Because some of the things that we see, I have a, a client who used to call her management style kumbaya. It was, she said, it was like we all sit around a campfire singing <laughs> and holding hands and that that's the only way I know how to manage people. And for the first 15 years of her business, I guess it worked. And her employees were very happy and engaged and they stayed for a long time. But she got to a point where she was brave enough to realize that mothering her staff was not as effective as guiding them, mentoring them. And she didn't need to be like their mother. So that's one of the things that I see is when we start trying to nurture our staff as opposed to empowering them, that's a sign that your management style may be really limiting you and that you want everybody to like you. And as women, we want everyone to love us. So if it's not a popularity contest, and if you find that that's what you're striving for is to be well-liked by your staff, then there's a significant issue there. Well, it's more smothering than mothering because then you know, the, a good mother is going to confront the, the behavior that needs to be dealt with. They're not going to just sit there and mollycoddle um, and rescue. So the, I, I think the, the challenge that we have to present people is what are the questions that you should be asking yourself on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis as the owner of your business in order that you can let go of the low value, the lowest value activities. You can delegate them to the right person or you can delegate it to the managers. So if you think of it, there's $10, $100, and $1,000 an hour jobs. Why is it that you're spending any time on the $10 an hour jobs? And what can you do to delegate or get rid of that immediately? And the big question is, does it need to be done at all? Then the $100 jobs, are you going to be coaching the people who are going to be managing the $10 jobs and running the $100 jobs? And should you even be doing the 1000 and maybe focusing on the $10,000 an hour jobs? So how do you move yourself through that process so that you're making fewer decisions, that you're delegating more, that you're spending more time in design and very little in hands-on grubby doing, because that's not your job as the leader if you want to build a business. One of the basic rules of small business is small businesses stay small because the owner keeps them that way. So what do we have to do in that case to liberate women because that's the, where I think we we had our disagreement earlier rather than free them, but liberate them from the chains that they're creating themselves that are not real. So that's the question. What do they believe that just is not true about uh, how you grow and develop a, a strong business that 
gives them what they want in life as well as is robust you know, and sustainable. A lot of times, the business owners are not taking the time or effort to determine what they want. They're on the treadmill. And they figure as long as they keep walking and running on the treadmill, everything will be fine. They're bringing in lots of revenue. Uh, now, most of my clients do not want their company necessarily to get bigger. They want more revenue. They want to grow in terms of their revenue growth, but not necessarily to have a big system that they have to manage. And that works fine. And they're very profitable. And that's the difference between small and profitable, is they want to be very profitable. What they often overlook, in addition to the fact that they are the leader as opposed to a service provider, they overlook the idea that just generating revenue is not building value. And to your earlier point, it's about building systems and processes and having your team in place. But it doesn't mean you have to have 150 employees. You can do that. And in fact, I've helped people sell their company when they've had a team of 12. There is tremendous value there depending on how you build it. But the things that a lot of us believe that are not true, like I have to take on everything myself. If there's a problem, I have to solve it. If I want to bring in more revenue, I'm the person that has to go out and get those clients and figure out those deals. And yes, they do need to lead that, but they don't necessarily have to implement it. There may be people inside that can help them implement all those pieces. And the systems and the processes are one of the main things that build value. And we tend to rely on technology, which is fine, except that's where there's a lot of waste because we subscribe to 10 or 12 different systems and then we don't really use them or we don't delegate to a particular person to take the lead on making sure everybody's trained to use them. So they fall into disuse and we're still paying the subscriptions. So that is a really common place. And it's the first place I look for ways. So there are things we believe, like if I have these systems, everything's going to fall into place. And we all know from using technology, that's just not how it works. You have to learn how to use those tools and then integrate it into everything you're doing in order for that to be valuable to you. So there are so many issues that women are, where we really get stuck. And that's part of my role is to bring that to their awareness and to educate women business owners that the business may feel like a burden to you. And you may think you can stay on that treadmill forever, but someday you're going to have to step off of it, whether it's for health reasons, or maybe a family member becomes ill, or you have an elderly parent or children, all of those things for which women are responsible and certainly feel responsible, you're going to have to step off the treadmill. And the question is, is your business going to fall apart if you do? And if it's not going to fall apart and you've built that value and those systems, then when you have to step away, will it be that you close the doors or that you can sell your company for all the time and effort and money that you've put into it? 
So that's where I think people are leaving money on the table. And that actually makes me so sad that so many women think they have nothing to sell and close the doors when they're finished working. And I just find that really sad. Well, most businesses could make a hell of a lot more money and keep a lot more money in profit if they stop doing things that are massively inefficient. If you look at your most of your marketing and sales motions, they have failure rates north of 95%. Just because you get 3% conversion rate, is that's not good. That tells me that you're attracting 97% of the wrong people and you're paying 97% of all the follow-up activity for administration, not revenue generation. And you get what you tolerate. So what I tend to see in a lot of businesses, whether they're male or female run, is that they have a tendency to hire poorly and then take too long to work out why they are hiring poorly And they don't remedy that. There is a rule in sales, which is hire slow, fire fast. And more often than not, they tend to recruit reactively. And they recruit reactively because they're very, very busy because they're a bottleneck. And everything has to go through them, which is really a symptom of micromanagement. And then that disempowers and creates disengagement. And in Europe, we have a 14% engagement level. 14. That means 86% of employees in Europe are mildly engaged, disengaged, or actively disengaged. That is a travesty. And that's across the board in SMEs as well as large. So what other things do you see women owners tolerating that they shouldn't And because they don't confront it, because they're avoiding the conflict, because they don't understand the difference between constructive conflict and destructive conflict, and they treat both the same, then they end up being the architect of their own downfall. And then they probably start digging into their relationship with money because money is tight. So talk to me about that. It's very well said. One of the huge challenges for women is exactly what you described, that all conflict is the same and all conflict is bad and it's painful. So we'll avoid it at any cost. And one of the things that they tolerate above everything else are clients that treat them badly and take advantage and are rude to their staff and keep asking for more and more, but don't want to pay more. They just want you to throw in extra services or extra advice. They want to be able to call you anytime and they really take advantage. And tolerating those types of clients, which you know are not ideal, but you're so afraid to let them go. There are very few women who will fire a client. And, or they talk about it and they'll say, you know, I really need to fire this client. But they work with them for another two or three years. And they will tolerate it because they are so afraid of the conflict and they don't want to lose that revenue because they're very afraid they can't replace the revenue and they have salaries to pay. So that, again, is a huge trap. And it takes a lot of time and effort when I'm working with a client for me to help them first understand about detachment and how they can step to the side 
and still feel in control and how they can shift their thinking by reframing what is happening in their business and being very honest about when there is waste, when they're leaving money on the table, what they're tolerating and taking all of those pieces so that they can start to shift their thinking. That really takes a lot of time and energy to shift the way you think. So that's the first piece. Then we need to change the behaviors based on the thinking. And behaviors are typically habits. So again, we need to start changing habits, the way they're thinking, and that has to be reinforced over and over because those are big changes. And a lot of the women that I'm working with are very successful. They have money in the bank. They're making great money. They're working with clients they do love. Occasionally, we'll have some that they're not crazy about, and they'll tolerate that for a while. But there's so much fear underneath all of that, that it is easier to deal with the status quo. And so many, many business owners, not just women, will tolerate the status quo and think, this is fine for now. That's, in fact, that's the number one thing I hear when I talk to people about their pricing. They'll say, oh, my pricing is fine. Oh, yeah, it's fine. I haven't changed it in eight years, but it's really fine. And that's because it's so much easier to believe that it's fine lazy. and to not have to deal with it. Lazy. I don't, I don't know that it's lazy as much as it is afraid. It, but it's it's lazy as well because if you thought about it, the 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 big problem that I see is that people have stopped thinking. There is next to no reflection. Anyone who hasn't yet read it, I recommend it on a regular basis. The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. It's a must read if you're a business owner because he will leave you nowhere to hide, and every chapter has a series of wonderfully uncomfortable questions. But he recommends, and I can't recommend this highly enough, 45 minutes a week, you, the hardest question that you have to face, and a pen, a pad, and no interruptions. And you have to write to the question. And you'll end up with more questions and answers. And what you'll also end up with is a significant understanding of your problem and what the constraints are and what you might be able to do within them. Because the question no one seems to ask is, is there a better way? And once you've asked that question, who has already done this better than we are? Because those two questions can probably save you about 95% of the effort. Because most of the time people are beating their head against the wall and then they're blaming the brick for their headache. Enough. So stop lying to yourselves, because it is a lie. It may well be driven by fear, but you are lying to yourselves. Procrastination is a choice. You have made a decision. I'm, I was only following orders. What didn't work in Nuremberg, it doesn't work now, because you make the choice. It was a decision. If you are a person of value or values, then you know that that is something you don't compromise on, your values. However, when you're feeling threatened, the temptation is there to bend those values, do a Bernie Madoff and start with one little lie 
and before you know it, Ponzi scheme and billions of dollars in jail. Well, the same thing happens when we start um, compromising our word, especially our word to ourselves. And so I will take issue with that. I believe it is a lie, and it may well be driven by fear, but people need to recognize that uh, the excuse is not valid. Thoughts? Well, I think that is well said. I think it is such a difficult issue. Yes. <laughs> because you and I can talk about it, debate it. We can, we have our different perspectives, which I find really fascinating. I always like hearing others' perspectives. But the challenge is how do we affect change? And that to me is a process, it's not a snap of the fingers. And what we can and can't control. I can't control society. I can't control most systems. I knew that as a lobbyist, that my goal, my initial goal of the level playing field was not possible. And that because I couldn't change the system, I needed to have a different goal. And that's the way I approach things with my current clients, helping them feel empowered and be able to change the way they think and how they behave and what habits they have in place, what's working for them and what's working against them. And also helping them clarify exactly what they want. Because to your point about reflection, if you're not taking that time, you're probably not clear on what you want your outcomes to be. Other than I want to make sure I'm providing great results for my clients, because we all believe that. And that's wonderful, but there are so many other things For example, if you have staff, are they consistently providing the service the way you want them to? And that's a huge problem, for, especially for small companies, because your client may not be getting a consistent experience in the work that you're doing. And that really affects the reputation of your company and so many other things. So again, understanding what you can and can't control and what your goals are. And Marcus, as you say, the job to, to be done and how you're going to achieve that. Those are all things that I want to empower women so that they feel as though I can change the way I'm doing things and make sure that I'm a highly profitable, highly effective company. What's really interesting is there are so many opportunities if we applied the simple question, if all I could do in order to improve things was to subtract. And I have a philosophy, which is I'm always looking to do less but better on purpose. And the unofficial motto is double the money, half the work. How do we create the conditions where that is possible with no uh, diminution in the service quality or the the experience for the customer, and in fact, maybe even improving it so that they derive more value so that we can do our job within the six to eight hours a day that we're contracted for and leave us time for reflection so that we can be fully present wherever we are, whether we're at work or at home. And that has to be the goal of everybody who wants to have a reasonably well-balanced life and not spend their life in fear and not spend their life constantly putting their health at risk. 
because this is a very stressful um, you know, uh, occupation if you do it the other way. It is, which ties back to the broken cookie effect. Because as women, we are used to sacrificing. So we will sacrifice our well-being in order to build this wonderful, profitable, effective company. And that is exactly what I'm talking about with the broken cookie effect. Yes, it trickles down to pricing and clients and staff. But the bigger picture is that we are willing to sacrifice whatever we need to in order to protect and support everyone around us, including our clients. And that broken cookie effect is so pervasive. I see it with every woman that I work with and my colleagues. And it's just so pervasive because that's how we're raised. So yes, I agree with you that self-sacrifice can be damaging. And it, in theory, that should be our goal, but it isn't. It isn't for women. Patty, we've come to time. How can people get hold of you? Well, thank you so much for having me. You can find the book, Your Hidden Advantage, at yourhiddenadvantage.com. And there are some bonuses there that are companion pieces to the book. And if you're curious about whether or how to position your company for exit, I have an assessment called the Exit Readiness Index. And you can find that at she-exits.com. And we'll have that in the blurb. Patty, thank you ever so much. I've found this very instructive. One final question then. You've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in your ear, age 23. What would you whisper in Patty's ear that she'd have probably have ignored because at that time she probably thought she was invulnerable, invincible and would live forever? Um, so what, what one choice bit of advice would you have given her? I would have clued her in that life is not a straight line. There are lots of twists and turns and being adaptable and resilient is incredibly important. And I would have clued her in that striving for a level playing field is a waste of your time. You can strive for other things that you can achieve. And again, it made me, not having a level playing field made me more creative and coming up with solutions and strategies that I might not have come up with otherwise. Now, if I had known that at 23, I think I would have weathered the storm better than I did. And that could have been super helpful to me. Very interesting. Patty Block, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, leave us a review. Now, if you're somebody who has been in sales probably about five to 15 years, and you've been quite successful in the past, you've been trained in your traditional systems, the medics, the Richardsons, uh, the Sandlers, the spins, all that sort of stuff. and it used to work, but it doesn't. And you're now working longer hours. You're stressing out. The chances of you hitting quotas seem to be going further and further away. And you are being tempted into having to maybe make compromises or uh, make unilateral discounts or maybe withhold information just to get a deal over the line. Before you do anything like that, then please give me a call.
I'm on plus four four seven five one five nine three seven two two one, or use the link and book a time for us to have a chat. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.